here at SWEC, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us, and that um, through reading and hearing from it, um, that's how God communicates to us. So today's Bible reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. You can find it on page 839 in your Blue Pew Bibles. So I'll just give you some time to get those out. So Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome to church. So my name is Pete. I'm uh, the lead pastor of our church. Look, if you've been with us uh, for the last three weeks, these three big questions hopefully have really stirred your thinking. Uh, if this is your first week here, it's not too late. So glad you could join us. I think for me, this is probably the question that resonates um, with a lot of people on a very personal level. The first question was, you know, how can I have peace in an anxious world? I think everyone's feeling that. But I think it doesn't get more personal uh, than this one in terms of making us feel vulnerable, really making us think, is there someone who would love me just for who I am? Uh, I believe that God wants to meet you today. Uh, you may not believe in him. You may not be a follower of Jesus, uh, but you're not here by accident. And so I'm going to pray, and if you join me, so that God can really speak into every single heart. Why don't you join me and let's pray. Father, I know that right now there's people here they may not even know that you're about to encounter them, but I pray that you would. Pray that this episode from a couple of thousand years ago may really come to life. Because, Jesus, you are alive. 
I pray that right now, today, through my words and through the word uh, that we've read, that you would be real to people here, that you would be inviting, that you would be wooing, that you would be calling people right now, today, to accept your incredible love for them. Amen. Well, every man's dream comes true for an unsuccessful bookshop owner called William Thacker. He has an unsuccessful travel bookshop in uh, Notting Hill in, in London. When one day the world's top movie star walks into his Notting Hill bookshop. Her name is Anna Scott. And uh, after the shock of her coming into his shop, and she leaves, but a few minutes later, another chance encounter as he runs into her with orange juice and spills it all over her. Anyway, that, long story short, leads uh, to her getting changed in his apartment and then leads to a kiss just before she leaves. And that blossoms into an unlikely romance between Anna Scott, the Hollywood movie star, and William Thacker, the nobody from Notting Hill. Now, eventually, they do get to know each other better over the, the series of a couple of days. But you see, if you're being together, if you're together trying to start a relationship with the world's most wanted and most beautiful actress, it's obviously not going to be easy. Now, uh, towards the end of the movie, uh, she breaks his heart. But then afterwards, she comes and months pass, she comes and asks William to give her and their relationship another chance. And surprisingly, you'd expect this is happy ending time, right? Surprisingly, he says no. He says no, because he's had his heart broken before, he can't risk having it broken again. So I want to show you a clip from the movie Notting Hill, because it is a fairly old movie, one of my favorites, by the way, and if you want to catch up, it's on Netflix at the moment. Um, have a look at what happens next. That really is real now, isn't it? I live in Notting Hill, you live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. Fine. Fine. Good decision. Good decision. The fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy. Asking him to love her. And I think that's one of the most unforgettable and romantic lines ever spoken in a movie. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. I think there is a deep longing in all our hearts, isn't there, to be loved and accepted just as we are. For Anna Scott, to be loved for the real her, not the beautiful and successful celebrity that everyone else sees. But for you and me, it's also to be loved for the real us, isn't it? Warts and all. For us, it's probably in spite of the fact that we're not beautiful and successful like we wish we were. American pastor and writer Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything. That's a really insightful quote, isn't it? 
Well, that bit that we just read out, that uh, Johnny read out for us in Luke 7, please keep it open because we're going to take a dip into it today. It's a historical account. This actually happened in history of someone who everybody knew but nobody loved. Okay, This is the encounter of someone who everyone knew but nobody loved who meets Jesus. Someone, when she meets Jesus, knows that he is someone who knows me fully but is willing to love me fully. And accept me completely. And today, the offer is Jesus, who is alive today, wants to invite you and me into that kind of love. Now, I think the best way of appreciating this account is to imagine ourselves in it. Right? So imagine we're in this dinner party. I'm up to point number one if you're wondering. There's a host of the party. His name is Simon. We know that he is a well known public figure in the community, uh, a Pharisee. Uh, of Jesus' day was a very respected member of the community. So they would be like your OAM recipients, you know, your Order of Australia Medal recipients. Eh? People being recognized as upstanding citizens. And Simon is holding a dinner party at his home, and he wants Jesus to be there. Now, here's the thing about this, these kind of dinner parties. It's a little bit different to our dinner parties. This is probably one of those public dinner parties in that not everyone is invited to be a guest to eat at the dinner party, but the doors of this dinner party would be open to the public so that anyone from the community could come in. Now, they're not going to recline and eat the food, but they could sit around the edges of the room while the actual guests right, were reclining and dining, and the people on the outside could then watch the conversation. It was like a, a, a dinner party on show. Nowadays, I guess it would be like a reality TV program or something like that. Now, I want you to imagine that you are one of those members of the public. Okay, so let's get in the mindset. Let's imagine, let's role play this. You're one of the members of the public and you walk through those open doors and you see a group of men in the center. They're reclining around a table of food on couches. That's how people in the Roman world ate. They had these long couches that would recline leaning on one arm. Um, and each couch would face towards the table in the center, and, and it probably looked a little bit like spokes of a wheel, if you know what I mean. All the faces towards the center, all the feet on the outside. And so you're there on the edge of, of the room, you're sitting by the walls, and you are watching this dinner party take place. Now, it's not like our dinner parties, not just because of how public it is and how they recline to eat. Also, there's, there's a set of cultural codes that are foreign to us. Right? A set of cultural codes that are foreign to us. You see, first century Middle Eastern culture, like many cultures today, operated on an honor-shame kind of cultural uh, thing. Honor and shame. And, and this is the key to the passage. You need to understand how to decode it. Um, but some of us already do. So um, I don't know if you've ever been to a Chinese restaurant, and I'm sure a lot of you have. And you observe, so you're sitting at a Chinese restaurant, you're just finishing your meal, and you observe at the counter where people pay um, two Chinese uh, mums having a little bit of a tussle. I mean, they're smiling, but they're having a bit of an argument and almost getting a little bit physical because they're grabbing each other's wallets. And one person pulls out a credit card, the other person is pushing the credit card down and pulling out her own credit card. And then the other, you know, okay, now if you're a Chinese, you know what that's about, right? You're not freaking out. You're not going to call the police on them because you know what they're doing is fighting for the bill. That's a cultural code. And in the cultural code of Chinese culture, like many uh, cultures, this is also an honor-shame thing. You see, if I get to pay for you, then I honor you. But if you let me pay for you, you also honor me. 
You're giving me face. Yeah? That's the Chinese. You, you understand the code. Right? You, honor is exchanged. Honor is mutually given. And, and honor in these societies, like in Jesus' day, is like the grease of an engine. It keeps the engine of the culture running. So as a guest walking into this dinner party, you would be very aware of these cultural codes. You know how to decode it. So there you've got Simon. He is an upstanding, respected community leader. He has honor. He invites Jesus, who is the respected public figure, the teacher, into his home. And what he's trying to do is give honor to Jesus. But he's also receiving honor from Jesus because you have a celebrity in your home, you get honor too. Now, why does he open up his home so that it's a public party, a community party? Well, it's also, again, to enhance his honor. I'm a leader of the community. I can't have everyone eat my food, but you can watch what's going on, right? Makes him look good, enhances his honor. So all seems well, doesn't it? You're there, you're watching this. Simon's done what's expected of a man in his position, trying to honor a local celebrity. He receives honor, return everything. Seems really hunky-dory and good. Not really, because again... As a guest in that culture, you would have noticed some key things missing. You see, when Jesus walked in, the supposed honor guest, when he arrived, Simon, you notice that Simon's greeting of Jesus was a little cool. There wasn't a warm, friendly, Middle Eastern kiss, which is usually how they would greet friends. That didn't happen. And then it's, it's been a long, hot day walking around, and in those days, people wore sandals, right? And your feet get really dirty. But Jesus is not offered a chance to freshen up, not given water so that he could wash his feet or have one of the servants of the house come and wash his feet. He's not given any um, fragrant oil to freshen up with. I guess today would be like hand sanitizer or something, you know? That this dinner party is not as much of a, a warm reception as it might be a little bit of a, well, I don't know, a test. Simon seems to be putting Jesus up in front of the community, perhaps to assess him, to test him, see if this teacher really is every, what everyone says he is. Now, Jesus at this point could have noticed, right, the lack of honor he's been given, the full honor, and decided to pull out. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. He takes his place at the dinner party. He, re he relaxes and reclines with everyone. And so what would potentially be in that day and age, a bit of a, uh, an awkward situation is averted. Of course, that is until you see a woman enter through the open doors. And when you see her, and when the other guests also see her, you all quickly have a double take. You look twice. And when you see who it is, a hush comes over the whole room. Conversation goes dead. Because everyone knows who she is in this community. She's a celebrity of sorts, but not the kind of celebrity you'd be interested in knowing. In an honor-shame culture, she is so down the shame end, so away from the honor end, that you would be embarrassed to tell your kids about her. Because you know what she's done with her life. You've heard rumors about what she does for a job. It's so shameful that it's not even polite conversation topic. 
And as if that's, that's not enough, you see her not just walk in and just take a seat by the guests on the side of the walls like you. No, no, no. She goes right to the center ring of the couches where the men are reclining. And at this dinner party, there would have only been men. And so every eye is on her. And she shuffles over to the couch where Jesus was reclining. And you see her kneel by his feet. And then she does a series of shameful, shameful things. Firstly, she undoes her hair. Respectable women leave their hair tied up in Jesus' day and age. Only prostitutes and the sexually promiscuous let their hair out. She takes out a jar of perfume, not the cheap kind that's just kind of common oil mixed with some fragrance. No, no, the really expensive kind. Even the jar itself would have been worth a fortune. And you're there, you're thinking, I can only imagine what she would have, why she would need perfume like that. In her line of work, yeah, probably she does. You can only imagine how she even got the money to buy perfume like that. Right? Certain favors that we dare not speak about. And then she takes that perfume and she pours it all over the dirty feet of Jesus, the teacher, puts her hands all over her, his feet, and the smell can fill, is filling the room. It's intoxicating, but it's, it, it, because it's such a strong smell, it just makes the whole shameful episode even more shocking. Because in the ancient world, only the lowest of slaves would even touch someone's foot and wash them. The lowest of household slaves. And in the ancient world, even married women and their husbands wouldn't hold hands in public. And here she is, a shameful woman who led a shameful life, putting her hands all over this single man. And she's doing it while she's crying. And we're not talking about a few kind of trickle... No, no. These tears are streaming liberally down her face. This is a shameful lack of self-control. And worse still, as, as the tears run down from her face and it's dripping over Jesus' feet and mixing in with the perfume, she's using her hair, her untied up hair, shameful, and she's using that to wipe his dirty feet. And as if touching his feet wasn't enough and doing all this wasn't enough, she begins kissing it. And by the way, the word there for kiss is not the polite peck on the cheek for someone you've just met. It's the kind of word used about um, if a mum and dad have had their kids at um, school camp for a week and then sees them afterwards, all right? It's like smothering them with kisses. That's the word used there. And so she's like planting her lips all over his feet in this kind of intimate, in the cultural codes of the day, every taboo is broken. In an honor and shame society, you could not have more examples of shame. Now, coming back to us for a moment, I hope you enjoyed kind of picturing that because that's kind of what it would be like. In Australia, um, we're not an honor-shame society, so some of this is a little bit foreign, but you know what? We do understand, we may not understand the honor part as much, but we do understand shame, right? Because shame is a universal human experience. And shame, as you probably already know, is one of the root causes of some of the most crippling mental health problems. Psychologists distinguish shame from guilt. Right? Do you know the difference between shame and guilt? So guilt, they would say, is tied to specific behavior. I did the wrong thing. I'm guilty of doing the wrong thing. Behavior. Shame, though, is about your entire self. Yeah. 
because it's tied to how others see you and how you see yourself. But it's no longer I did the wrong thing. It's I am a failure. It's not I behaved badly. It's I am bad. I am worthless. That's shame. And because of shame's intensity and pain, the natural human reaction is we want to get rid of it, right? But we often do it in unhealthy ways. Um, one of the ways we, sh- we, we try and get rid of shame is we shift the hurt to others. And so psychologists have linked that anger and abusive behavior can often be motivated by someone who doesn't know how to deal with shame. Or you feel so, so much despair and worthlessness that it, it leads to self-harm. Suicidal thoughts. Or addiction is one of the consequences of shame. Addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to sex, to whatever. Because you just want to numb the painful feeling of shame. Now, I think we know what shame feels like. Maybe not for all of us to that degree. Maybe for some of you to that degree. And if that has been triggering for you, um, I just want to say it's, it's a really hard thing, isn't it? And uh, I can't deal with it in, in detail here, but we'd love to be able to pray with you and pray for you. If, if, if afterwards this is one of the things you really feel, um, especially if self-harm, suicide, addictions, and please come and talk to us. But I think we all know how the shame thing feels because we all have areas of our lives that we're ashamed of, yeah? I mean, shame makes us think, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. Right? That's a natural reaction. If you really knew me, you wouldn't want anything to do with me. And so shame makes us want to hide. I mean, shame is the reason why you edit your social media posts. And so do I. Shame is the reason why you only show the best side of yourself. Because God forbid people should see what I really look like. How my life really is. What I really think of my friends. I mean, if you really knew me, you would reject me. So I have to keep pretending and hiding. Now, in an honor shame society culture, that would have been amplified. Right? You can just imagine what it had been like for, for this woman. She had every reason to hide. But notice she doesn't. That's the surprising thing. She does the opposite. She holds nothing back. She is completely open. She is completely vulnerable. If anything, it's, it's Simon, the, the Pharisee, the host. Remember, he was holding back. He withheld the proper warmth of hospitality that someone in his position should have given to Jesus. True friendship, true warmth. He withheld that. But she didn't. Why? That's the key, isn't it? Why? Why would she hold nothing back even though she had so many reasons to hide? Well, it's because something is powerful enough to interrupt even the deepest shame. And I'm up to my second point. So you're there at the party. At the point when everyone would have been so shocked, would have spat on the ground, spat on her, walked out of the party, Jesus speaks up. He tells a story. He tells what's called a parable, which is a story with a hidden meaning. And he directs it at Simon the host, but remember, it's a public party. Everyone's listening. He's directing it so that we can hear as well. It's a simple story, isn't it? Two men owe money. One owes the equivalent of a car loan, the other equivalent of a 
cheap home loan. I was going to say home loan, but nowadays home loan is like millions of dollars. But anyway, um, it's 20,000 versus 200,000, all right? They both have their debts canceled. And Jesus' point is, who's going to be more grateful? Who's going to return the most love to the money lender? Right? Even Simon knows the answer. Reluctantly, he knows the answer. Of course, it's the one with the canceled home loan, the 200K, not the 20K. And that's the point of Jesus' story. And Jesus is saying, well, so it is when you compare this woman with you, Simon. See, why is it that Simon the Pharisee held back? Why did he do what looked honorable to those around him, but he was actually more concerned about how it made him look than express true love, true hospitality to Jesus? Do you see what? That's what he did. Why did he hold back? And in contrast, why would this woman hold nothing back? I mean, she literally had it all hang out, right? She did not care about what others thought at all. She gave all of her love, all of her appreciation to Jesus and honored him in the only way that mattered. Even if it seems shameful to everyone else, she honored him. Because, says Jesus, she has been forgiven much. She has been forgiven much. Now, note... Jesus says, she has been forgiven much. That's in verse 47 and 48. She has been. It's not the present tense, you are forgiven. It's she has been forgiven. It's actually the perfect tense, if you understand what grammar is. But it's a type of past tense where it says something has happened in the past and you stand in the results now. You stand forgiven. Already happened, but now you're still forgiven because of what's happened in the past. Which means that there was an unknown backstory to this encounter, and we don't know it. But Jesus' use of the past tense, the perfect tense, probably hints at the fact that Jesus has already met this woman before. We don't know when, we don't know how, but he already knew her. He already knew her shameful past. He already knew everything about her reputation, but he had already forgiven her. He had already pronounced that in his eyes and in God's eyes, she was free of her shame and guilt. She had already been accepted by Jesus' love. He who knew her fully and yet loved and accepted her fully. And that's why she came that night. And her tears were not just tears of remorse. They were actually more tears of gratitude. And that's why she held nothing back and wanted to give to Jesus the very thing that she had that was most costly to her, this jar of perfume. And that's why she didn't give a rip about what other people thought. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is God, come in the flesh. And that God, the one who created us, knows us better than we know ourselves. Have a look at this ancient song or poem from the 139th Psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. A bit later on. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You and I cannot hide from God. 
He's not fooled by our Instagram posts. He's not even fooled by the image you project about yourself when you come to church. And if all of us, without exception, would be horrified, even if our closest family and friends knew every dirty and dark secret of ours, right? You would be horrified, wouldn't you? I would be horrified. Well, how much more so do you think we would want to hide from a God like that, who is perfect, who lives in unapproachable lights, as the Bible, who is only ever beautiful and only ever good and only ever righteous? How would you even stand before Him, knowing that He knows everything about you? Wouldn't you want to hide? And maybe for you, this is the reason you've been running away from God. Well, today, though, Jesus is saying to you, good news. We want to hide, because if you knew anything about God and His knowledge and His perfection, you want to hide. But Jesus is saying to you, you know what? You don't need to hide. Not from me. You don't need to run from me. Not from the God who knows you fully and yet loves you fully. Because just like Jesus loved this woman and loved and accepted her without embarrassment, without shame, right? Jesus wasn't embarrassed. Jesus didn't feel shamed. Well, he wants you to be his. And he is glad to call you one of his. And he's not going to be embarrassed about you. Because you see, Jesus has done everything to erase shame. Your shame, my shame, her shame. Now, you need to know that in an honor-shame society, you can't just erase shame by pretending it's not shameful or ignoring it. It doesn't work like that. If you did that, it would bring shame on yourself. That's how it would work. So in the case of God, He can't just erase our guilt and shame without calling into question His justice and therefore His honor, right? For God to say, all the things you've done or all the things that, these, that we've done to the world doesn't matter. That would call into question His justice and actually means dishonor Him. And we get a sense of that, like if a court, right, our justice system gives a light sentence to an abuser, maybe someone like this this week who murdered his whole family, three young kids, his wife, I know he killed himself as well afterwards, but imagine if he faced up to court and he lived and the court just gave him a slap on the wrist. We would all be up in arms, right? We would say the courts should be ashamed because that's unjust. No, to restore honor to someone who has acted shamefully, a price needs to be paid. Shame needs to be accounted for. Shame needs to be dealt with. Now, in the case of Jesus, why can he erase shame? Here's why. Listen up. Because he willingly took on shame that wasn't his. He willingly took the place of shameful people like this woman, like you, like me. You know, the next time Jesus is kissed would be at his betrayal, the night before he dies. The next time Jesus is anointed would be his dead body at his burial. Because he would go to the cross, and you need to know the cross that you might wear around your neck was not just an instrument of torture in the Roman world, it was primarily an instrument of shame. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die on a cross? Why couldn't he be just beheaded or, you know, died quietly, stabbed to death? Or, you know, he'd still die, 
potentially for other people's sin. But why, why such a public? It's because of the shame. The Roman cross was about shame. You hung there for hours for everyone to see. And by the way, Jesus would not have had a loincloth. He would have been completely naked as people walked past you, seeing you condemned with all the charges against you on the top of the cross. They would spit at you. They would punch you. They would kick you. And they would see you struggle for every single breath as you died. Shame in that culture was about, the cross was about shame. Jesus went to the cross to bear shame in our place. He didn't deserve it. He lived the perfect life. But it was our guilt on him, our shame on him. And he went there and he took it, bleeding, naked, dying, shamed in our place. Because as your God, who knew in advance the kind of shameful things you and I would do and still loved us, that's what he would do to show how much he loved us. He would take our shame in order to erase our shame. He loved us enough to die for us. The Bible says, as I said, that Jesus is God. Jesus is alive today. Now, these are big claims. Jesus is alive today. I mean, you may believe Jesus existed historically, but the claim that Jesus rose again from the dead and is alive today, well, that's a huge claim. No, I understand that. These big claims of the Bible, we want to say you can test them. You can investigate them. And we'll give you an opportunity to do that later on. But just for a moment, if this is true, right? If it is true that Jesus is alive today and he is God and he is your creator, then there is great news, isn't there? Because he is offering you the same kind of fully known and fully loved love today. That offer is here today for you. And you might be here and Jesus is saying to you in your heart and you know it, you hear it. Not maybe in spoken words, but you feel that weight on your heart and you're like, yep, this is for me. He's inviting me. He's talking to me. Now I asked you before to find yourself in this story. So there are three groups of people here corresponding to, right? The main character in the story. Three groups of people among you that will correspond to main characters in this story. The first group is the crowd. Remember? You're the one sitting on the outside observing this encounter, making up your own mind. And that may be you today. You're really just here, and for you, today is like a first date, right? It's, it's, it's intrigued you. You want to find out more, but you're not ready to make a commitment. So you want to find out more. You want to find out whether Jesus does stand the test of truth, whether the Bible stands the test of history. That's great, because uh, as Dom introduced before, that's what fresh is for. Don't miss the opportunity. It's five Tuesdays. And it's best to come to all of them, but if you can only make a couple of them, come to as many as you can. It's worth it. Five Tuesdays in your life to really test out the claims. Because if this stuff is true, as Ivy says, it's going to change your life, right? It's worth it, isn't it? Come to fresh if you're the crowd. But the second group of people is you're a bit like Simon, Simon the Pharisee. You know Jesus, but you haven't ever really experienced what it's really like to love Jesus and be loved by Jesus. You may even be one of our regulars coming to church week by week, but your heart is distant because you haven't ever let your guard down, even with God. You've not allowed him to come into your life. You've not surrendered everything to him like this woman has. Warts and all, shame and all, take it all, Jesus. You've not done that. You've been at a distance. And you're like Simon. And I believe there are people here today, people that you may even think, but everyone thinks I'm already a Christian. 
I'm going to be so embarrassed if they find out I wasn't. Who cares, right? Remember, this is not about what other people think. There's no shame in that. It would be such a shame if you didn't take up the offer because you wanted to remain a distance because you cared more about what other people thought. So if you're the Simon kind, you know something about Jesus, but you're distant, or religious even, but distant, I'm inviting you, Jesus is inviting you to become the third character, which is, of course, the woman. The one who is fully known and fully loved. Today, you can come to Jesus with all of your guilt and shame, every nook and cranny that you are so horrified about. Well, He knows it anyway. And you can come to Him and just confess it to Him. You can say sorry. And you can trust that because He died for your shame already, He can completely erase it. And you can live the rest of your life in the sphere of His unbelievable love for you and acceptance for you. See, for the first time perhaps in your life, you can know a love that will absolutely free you. It is the most freeing sort of love not to keep looking around and thinking, what does everyone think of me? And to have the burden of your shame, the exhaustion of pretending all the time that comes with it. Um, I showed you a quote by... Tim Keller before. Let me show you the full quote. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness. And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Do you know this experientially? Do you know this kind of love? Because this is on offer for you today. Are you hearing Jesus? Is He talking to you? Because if He is, don't miss the opportunity. Open up the uh, handouts you got when you came in. On the bottom right is a prayer. I'll actually throw it up on the screen as well. It's not magic. It's just the kind of thing you'd want to say to Jesus if you hear His offer today and you're like, yeah, this is, I, I need to take it up. And again, it may not be for everyone. You may be still the crowd sitting around, maybe coming to fresh in a week and a half's time is the best next step for you. But I believe today God is speaking to some of you here. And this is the kind of thing you need to take up today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lead us to pray those words. And it's in front of you. It's on the, so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you want to pray it to say, Jesus, I want this. I want this love. Then when I pray it, I'll pray it slowly. Why don't you pray it in your head quietly to Him? He'll hear you. All right? But everyone else, whether you've prayed something like this before, you're not ready to pray it. If, if everyone just kind of look down at their feet, um, bow your head. That way, those who want to pray it won't feel self-conscious. Why don't we all do that? Why don't we all look down and not look around us? And uh, Jesus is inviting some of you here today to pray this. And if that's you, say it with me in your hearts quietly to Him. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am guilty and broken before You. There's so much that I'm ashamed about. But you died for me, in my place, for my shame, 
So please forgive me and erase my shame. Thank you that you know me fully and love me fully. I want to live in your love from now on. Amen. You can lift up your heads now. Look to the front. Look, hey, if you prayed that and you really know that was Jesus doing business with your heart, um, it may not be right now, but at some point you will experience what this woman experienced, that gratitude. It may even come to tears. Who knows? I know really tough guys who never cry for anything, but when they meet Jesus, okay, it may not happen like that for you. It doesn't always happen to everyone, but you will, you will experience the surprising, liberating joy of having that kind of love, love you. Now, if that's you, we would love to be able to help you in your journey. It's also, we would love to help you if you would love to connect with Fresh and have your questions answered. But we're going to stand and sing first, and I'll come back and tell you a little bit of how we're going to do that. Why don't we stand? Why don't we sing a song that's about Jesus accepting us the way that we are, empty-handed, but alive in His hands. Let's sing Majesty.